What does it take to become an elite 40K player? How do the top competitors overcome bad dice? The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War Unbroken. Insight into the game plans of the top players on the planet with your hosts, Blake Law and the Art of War Coaches. Hello and welcome to Art of War Unbroken. Champions may lose, but their spirits remain unbroken. I'm your host, Blake Law. This is episode 25 of the podcast, and we are once again absolutely thrilled you are joining us today. They say we learn the most from our losses. That is what this show aims to do. We aim to interview elite players who have lost one to two games at a major event. We're going to talk about the game they played, what they perceived maybe they did or didn't do wrong, and just really dig into the game. Not dive into the game, dig into the game. How often have you played played the game on bad deep dive? Dang it, Brad. How often have you blamed a game on bad dice? We've all done it. I haven't done it ever. I mean, I'm completely blameless in the situation. But this show aims to debunk that myth. This is part one of the episode. So in this part, we'll analyze the game. We'll talk about common mistakes, the secondaries that the player took, and we'll talk about target priority. Part two, which is available to subscribers at theyardofwar40k.com, we will talk about strategy adjustments. We'll talk about list adjustments. We'll talk about all the hardball questions like how does this list play to other lists such as admin flyers or other work flyers, spoiler alert. We'll talk about the elite player mindset. Our episode today is so, so cool because it's in SoCal at the SoCal Open. We are bringing on a gentleman who made a real attempt at getting to top eight with the works but fell just shy, losing fifth round, actually sixth round, to Admech. My co-host today cannot be stopped. What does physics say about an immovable object? Force equals mass times Brad times acceleration at this point in time. He's the recent winner of the Michigan GTs, a nine-time member of Team USA. He's won Adepticon 2012, plus many, many that are archived in ancient history. He has three top finishes in the eight at LVO. He won the Orange Forces GT this year. He's the 2021 ACO champion. He was the runner-up at Games Workshop New Orleans, Mr. Brad Chester. <sighs> Don't forget, I'm now the Prime Minister of Canada after winning the Sutton Stalling. Oh, I, I, I didn't have that. I forgot about that. I did it last episode and I actually missed it this time. He is now the prime minister of Canada. Yeah, he won another one up in Canada last weekend. I came back with bounty. I came back with Canadian cookies and maple syrup. That's a real thing. Did you get some of those arrow bars, the ones that uh, are mint flavored? Those are my absolute favorite. No, just, I, have, I have Canadian cookies and uh, maple syrup. I like an actual bottle of maple syrup. I, get, I go to I go to the Walmart in Canada and I just stockpile those candy bars every time I go and that's not a, that's not a lie I get like twenty of them and I just store them in my fridge. Do you think I'll get a um, a Nobel Prize for the Brad equation? I'm trying to crack it right now. I have like this mantic like massive equation written on my wall right now. You, the thing is, is you didn't put uh, any wine statistic in there, so it's going to mess up the calculations. That's a that's a uh, constant variable though, so I didn't even include it because it's always there. It's like. It's the W. The W factor is just in front of all the other factors that are variables. So, I love it. I love it a lot. We should probably introduce who we have on today. Oh, sorry. Our guest today is new to the scene. He exploded onto the scene over the last two years. He is currently number two Necron player in the ITC. He came in third at the Lone Star Open, where he came on and talked on The Art of War. He just finished 33rd at the SoCal Open with just two losses. He is someone who I've wanted on this show, but Nick has stolen from me for Art of War Vanilla, and he just keeps stealing from me. 
He's the grim, dark, shady, the real grim, dark, shady, Mr. Marshall Mathers Peterson. Hi, guys. Happy to be here. Uh, haven't been here since that Art of War podcast, and it's really great to be with you guys again. As I mentioned in there, I uh, normally play Necrons, but I decided to try out my orcs that I have been uh, collecting dust on the shelf for a while. So it was fun to bring them out and test them against everybody there at the SoCal Open. How did it feel bringing the WOG instead of the old machinery? Oh, it was super fun. Uh, I've been playing orcs for years and years, and especially bringing combat orcs. Uh, I always like to play the orcs that were against the meta. When they fought, I would bring sh- orcs that shot. And then when now that they shoot, I bring orcs that fight. So, Marshall, are you in fact the real Grim Dark Shady, though? <laughs> uh, I want to do Grim Shady. Grim Shady? I mean, hey, maybe I'm just uh, a flayed one who got too deep into an orc camp. Dude, I'm not going to lie. We have to talk about you. We usually ask some other stuff, but I need to get a shout out for your list now because you brought the triple skill rig and you need tell me all about your list. Go top to bottom. Okay, yeah. So uh, my list was kind of built around the idea that more teeth means a stronger army. So I just had squigs and squigs galore. Uh, I had, so first of all, I had two different sections of the army. One of them was a uh, a goth section of the army, and then the other one was a snake bites detachment. And so, essentially, what it came down to was I had the three skill rigs, like you talked about, and each one was filled with ten uh, beast snaggas each. Then I had a truck filled with truck boys, and that was sort of the base of the army. Then they were supported by three different uh, beast bosses. One of them was the named character Mazrog in the snake bite detachment. And then the other two were just normal uh, beast bosses on Squigasaurus. One of them was kitted out for combat with the Edwapas Kill Choppa and Brutal But Cunning. The other one was kitted out for durability with the Beast Hide Mantle and the minus one to wound Warlord trait. All three of those together also had uh, six Squig Hog boys split into two units of three following Mazrog around. And then lastly, towards the front of the army, uh, kind of... Scouting ahead, there were three squads of ten commandos, all of which were goths. I love everything about your punchy punchy orcs. It makes me happy, all warm and fuzzy. If we were recording, I would definitely walk right now. Let's just uh, walk. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Get a little soft, a little soft walk. I, was, I, was for say, you. I don't want to be murdered by Brittany, so I, I'm gonna not walk inside the house. Dude, can, can you use spirit finger walks? Like, just do some spirit fingers in the spirit of walk. Yeah, there you go. Um. Well, let's 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 back up just one second here because you went to the SoCal Open. I want you to just hear a little bit about the event, how many people were there, kind of where it was at, and I want to know a little bit about the terrain. So the event had a little more than uh, two hundred people at the event, and going down there was awesome. I went down with my brother. Uh, it was his first tournament he's ever played. He's been in Mexico for the last two years, so I convinced him to come down. He brought his knight, so it was a great time being able to play with him, talking with all the players. It was great to see everybody down there at SoCal Open. It's really just like a mix of a bunch of different uh, gaming groups. You had people that I'd played before, like Sean Naden and other people from tournaments over in Texas. Uh, you had the Tabletop Titans crew there, which was really fun to be able to meet up with them. There was just a lot of different players that we'd known from all over, and it was a great social event as well as a competitive event. Um, As far as the terrain, the terrain was your classic frontline gaming setup. Uh, It was player-placed terrain, and it tended to be a lot of terrain that really filled up the board, tons of obscuring, and it was very similar to the terrain that was at the Lone Star Open. The main difference is they took away a lot of the heavy cover, because it seemed like a lot of Dark Eldar players didn't really like the fact that heavy cover was all over the place. And, uh, you know, you got to cater the, to the Dark Elves, right? As 
you damn right shall. <laughs> so yeah, it sounds like a great time, man. And uh and definitely we'll uh we'll go a little bit more into the terrain and kind of did it play a lot into the list. You know, when you built your list, you feel like it played into it, into the way you put your orcs on the table. You had already played at an FLG event, correct? Or no? Yes, at the Lone Star Open, uh, where I placed third with my Necrons, they were using yeah, the same I, train I, layout. I was going to say, I couldn't remember if it was a GW event or if it was an FLG event. I know I've, I've seen you there with the Necrons, I just didn't remember which one it was. Um, did it? Were you looking at that? Had you pre-placed everything to try to get those skill rigs through? Because you, you have a ton of stuff that can't move through walls so yeah the most of my army can't uh and anything that can is usually inside of something that can't uh so that definitely was part of it as far as the train goes it, the only units that i had that were really influenced by it were my orc commandos and so a lot of the placement of the terrain was more with the intent of trying to make it so I had to uh, worry the least about my own objectives. I didn't have a whole lot of units to just leave behind on objectives. Everything I had was kind of tooled to play the game in all sides. And so having, for example, a hill that was obscuring and super long, placing that in front of a back objective, that was a very common thing for me, just so I can place some, one small unit, maybe some squig hogs or drop a beast boy unit out there to hold that and just kind of keep it protected. So army-wide defensively, you can't really hide three kill rigs, right? So it kind of just became a game of placing it down, making sure my models could move through. Fortunately, kill rigs only have a base size of about four inches at the thinnest, which means that even with the normal standard train setup, I could still move anywhere on the board with them. Yeah, that's, nice. the, that's the only thing I was worried about, is just actually getting the old skill rigs up with, uh, with all the train out there. Yeah, fortunately, in the player packet, it does say that when you're placing terrain, if somebody has miniatures that are pretty wide, you take that into account when placing the terrain. So there was always space for my kill rigs to move through. Oh, nice. That's So you never felt like... Uh, the Do you feel like people really place things to block you, to move block you, essentially? Do you feel like that was kind of the defensive strategy for some of the people you went against? I mean... Uh, there were ups and downs for both. For example, if my opponent tried placing terrain so that it would force my kill rigs to snake through it, that also meant that they were placing layers of terrain that better obscured my army. So it was kind of a back and forth when yeah. they're trying to place terrain to stop me. That makes sense. That's good. Um, Brad, why don't you just go ahead and run through the list that Marshall lost to in round six. So he played a Skatari Admic list, I believe. Hey, Mr. Brian Pullen came over. So he started with a Forge World Mars list <clears throat> with double marshal. He had program retreat on one so he can bounce away. It's never it's never bad news when you're playing some Skatari to be able to fire and still shoot. Manipulus with Rainman of the Technomartyr. He had one, two, three, oh sorry, two squad, two five-man rangers, a big 20-man ranger block, a 20-man vanguard block, a small unit of five range uh five vanguards. A two units of five infiltrators, and then we brought all of the rust stalkers, a five-man unit and two ten-man biggers. He had a ten-man unit of flamer boy sterilizers and two uh five-man units of raiders, and then three Scorpius Dune Riders. So what is he putting in those? Is that where the Rust Dockers are sitting? Or what's the what are the Dune Rockers riders doing the in that list there? The uh you can put a bunch of the other. You can put a bunch of the little squads in there, and you can also put the sterilizers in there so they can jump out. Oh, nice. That's pretty cool. 
So why don't you run us through what mission y'all played here and kind of the secondaries both of y'all took here. So uh, just to really quick answer the question of what was in those vehicles, it was the two big 10-man squads of uh, elites and then the 10-man sterilizer squad. So yeah, that is where they were. Uh, as far as the mission, it was the scouring. And so that's the five objective mission where they're all in the center of the table and it's hold two, hold three, hold more, which means it's actually impossible to get just 10 points on primary. You're either getting 0, 5, or 15. Uh, then the secondaries that we chose, I took, uh, oh, what is the word for it? The one where you have to take three objectives. Stranglehold. Stranglehold. Yes, I took Stranglehold. I took uh, No Prisoners, because he had a whole lot of infantry wounds out there, and yeah, I would need say, to dig through them at some point. He definitely, he definitely had enough to give you all the No Prisoners there. There is a ton of two-wound bros sitting out there. Yeah, I think it was something like 12 points max, which isn't bad for no prisoners, especially since that's what I'm attacking anyway. And something to keep in mind with this mission, because it was the sixth mission, and at this point we had only both lost one game, what that meant is that we were both trying to get into top eight uh, by getting as many points as possible. And since we were right on the cusp, both of us, it meant that whoever won, they would have to win by quite a big margin to actually get in. And so the secondaries that we chose as a result... So rough, too. To, to play the scouring on the mission to get into the finals is so brutal. Yeah, it was quite brutal, but it was interesting as we sat there looking at our secondaries because there were some that were a lot easier to accomplish. For example, Brian's army gets rod like nobody's business, right? But we both chose a little bit more difficult of third secondaries knowing that we needed to basically score a perfect 100 to get into the top. Because of that, I took my third secondary as get the good bits, which is the same as the uh, mechanical uh, one for the Necrons, which is you do an action on a point with a unit, and if it's alive at the beginning of your next turn, you get three points. And you can only do it one unit per objective, uh, and it has to be a core unit. And so it's a little more risky. People can jump on the objectives and stop you from getting it. They can kill the units that are getting the points for you. But overall, it's a pretty good secondary if you're just, you need the big points or nothing. So those are the three that I took. Uh, Brian also took Stranglehold because there's five objectives and they're all really close to each other, of course. He took Eradication of the Flesh because he only had the three transports. So as long as he killed something, uh, there was no way for me to counter that. And the third one, I can't actually... Oh, he took Assassinate for the third one, because I had six characters in my army. The three Squigasaurs and also the three Kill Rigs. So those were the secondaries we took. They both involved some killing, some objective taking, and they were all just classed out to try and get the max points so that we could make it into that top eight. Nice. So tell me a little bit about kind of when you look across the table, like how did he deploy? How did you deploy kind of in defense on that? And when you look across the table, is that a bad matchup for you, or is that something you kind of thought you could uh, go in and win? And also, it's, it's to tell us a little bit what you're thinking about that, because the scouring has a very odd deployment. You lose a lot of uh, space for you. Yes, uh, the deployment for the scouring is strange, because you basically lose, I believe it's eight inches, on either side of your deployment zone. So you're forced towards the center, and you're also 28 inches away from your opponent, rather than 24. That wasn't necessarily the best for me because what that does is not only are my big base unit like my kill rigs and my uh, beast bosses closer together at the beginning, but it also means that that's just an extra two inches of distance that my combat army has to go across to get to his mostly shooting army. So the deployment there was also a little bit nasty. The way he deployed was very interesting. 
He saved his two big blobs of 20 until last, which was very smart of him. Because looking across the table, a big asset that I had was my commandos. If I got first turn and my commandos could just touch one of his 20-man units of Skatari, I can almost wipe the unit, guaranteed. So by him deploying the way that he did, he basically did it in such a way to mitigate that as much as possible. And his two units of 20 guys started basically as far back in his deployment zone as they could be. And he just understood that on a strictly back-and-forth trade basis, with him trading one, me trading one, he'd come out on top. So it was on me to sort of break that system. And in order to keep me from doing so, he deployed very defensively with all of his shooting units, which was very smart for him. Because if I had gone first, which I didn't, it would have been very nasty. What do the commandos do uh, when they hit that 20-man blob? I guess I just haven't seen them in action too much. I think I, they're ghosts yeah. for one, baby. Yeah, so the reason that you think commandos and it's not so much a blender unit is because most people take commandos as just small squads of five, probably as def skulls, as just utility picks, you know, just have that squad of five over on that objective, steal some primary here, do a rod over there. And most people see them purely as utility uh, units. But if you have a squad of 10 goff commandos, not including the knob, you've got 39 attacks on the wall hitting on threes with exploding sixes, which is statistically equivalent to hitting on twos. And because of their plus one strength, and their plus one to wound near terrain, which on a terrain-heavy board like the Frontline Gaming system has, you're basically always getting it. That means that against anything toughness four or lower, you're hitting on what is equivalent to twos, and wounding on what is equivalent of twos. And with minus one AP, it is perfect to bring those four up saves Katari to their 5-up invuln that they get from the cohort. So it's the perfect tool for wiping them out. That is kind of scary. Yeah, they're just blending them up. They're basically getting every attack through and just slaughtering that whole 20-man. Yeah, that's crazy. Absolutely. And the other upside of having those commandos is that they get to take some bomb squigs each. Now, the nifty thing about bomb squigs is they go 12 inches, they don't care about line of sight, and they don't care if something is a character or not. So by having three <laughs> squads of commandos with three bomb squigs, you're statistically able to, on average, remove the Skatari Marshal from anybody's army turn one. Which is a great thing to use. By the way, I didn't realize that they didn't, uh, they ignored uh, Bodyguard and everything else, just closest. Because I found out this weekend, unfortunately, even though I've played around with orcs, I decided to not read that part and get my Archon hit with a bomb squig. So yes, I can tell you from experience, the old bomb squig doesn't care about it, whoever's around. He just wants to know if you're within 12. Yep, super convenient. Just pick a unit within 12. Honestly, bomb squigs are the best snipers that the orcs have. So tell me a little bit about what happened after this. So he deployed a little bit more defensive with his big blocks. You, uh, you were all set up to move forward, and he got first turn, it sounds like? Yeah, so I deployed fairly far forward with about half of my commandos, with the understanding that his army was pretty well suited to fight mine. And because of that, I was sort of fighting an uphill battle here. The main assets that I had was a little bit of durability and mostly a better obsec presence because I knew he would have to play very reserved with his two 20-man blocks in the beginning of the game. It meant that if I kind of pushed him back, I could maybe pull up the board and score high on the primary because it's a mission where it's very easy to deny primary. So I had to be a little more aggressive than I would want to. However, he did get first turn, which meant that essentially those units were gone. His sterilizers were able to fly through, they were able to completely flame out one unit of commandos, then charge the next one, 
wipe out that unit of commandos, and then fly away into the skies like nothing happened. So that was basically all that happened turn one, were those sterilizers clearing out the midboard and him sending in some horses on the center objective just to get Stranglehold. Uh, the only other interesting thing that happened on that turn was that his squad of rangers was just barely able to see the horn of my kill rig, and uh, by spending five of his seven CP in that one round of shooting, they were able to take it down. Ouch. Yeah, so it was a the, big hit. So your the first turn... Go ahead. I was going to say, the kill rig is how many wounds, actually? The kill rig is 16 wounds at toughness 8 with a 3-up save and a 6-up invulnerable save. What Ooh. he did was he put on Wrath of Mars, I believe a plus 1 to wound, and whatever other shenanigans he would do. So he, they were basically hitting on 2s, rerolling 1s to wound, wounding on 5s with 6s being mortals at AP 2, yada yada yada. Yeah, that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty brutal, actually. So yeah, they were able to pick up a pretty gnarly model there. Were you able to get Stranglehold in turn one with him blocking out with those service raiders? Yes, I was. Uh, the nice thing about playing against Brian is he kind of likes to do the same thing that I enjoy doing, where if somebody gets within like just barely within that three inch aura of, say, for example, heroic intervention, you just understand like, hey, by the way, like if you want to not be heroically intervened, you want to make sure you're positioned in that way. And so Brian likes to kind of play in that same way where he doesn't like to have gotchas happen, even if they're in his favor. Uh, so when I moved up to a Cerberus Raiders, for example, he reminded me, by the way, they can run away if you try to charge them. And so it was kind of very good gentlemanly, like, hey, by the way, just a heads up, I know you don't play with the codex that I'm playing with, so I want to make sure we're both aware of everything. Um, and so essentially the way that I was able to get Stranglehold with those Cerberus covering the center of the objective is that the truck boys were able to move up the truck moves, they get out of the truck, they move, they advance, and they basically made a big old circle around the Cerberus Raiders. Since I had Obsec on the point, I then controlled the middle, and he had no reason for them to run away anymore, and I threw some casual, like a character, I think, ran in and killed the Cerberus Raiders. So it wasn't too difficult. Uh, we kind of knew that in the early turns, it would essentially be a back and forth where we both got all of our points, but then who has ever grinded down more would be the person who would start faltering. Well, don't leave us on the edge of our seats. Tell me how the rest of the game went. All right. So essentially, that was turn one. We were both getting a lot of points. My get the good bits was going well. Essentially, my squigs were on the back objectives. But with that kill rig down, that was just one less asset that I had. So on my turn, I reclaimed the center of the board. On his turn, he shot me off of it. And I believe he sent forward some of his uh, combat units just to kind of stick to the middle. And my turn two. Uh, a very similar thing happened. I sent out some beast snaga boys as well as a war boss and charged forward. One difference that I did make was that I advanced forward with one of my kill rigs very close to his lines. Uh, they charged a very insignificant unit. Uh, I think the one in the center, even though they didn't need to, just so they could pile forward. The reason I did this is because I knew that if I had any chance of winning this game against him, it would have to be in the primary. My obsec units, I just had a couple more than he did, and I had a little bit more ability to get into his side of the table than he did mine with my objective secured. So the, the big trick that happened in the middle of the game was my kill rig drove into his side of the board, and he charged it with basically everything nearby on his turn. That would be his turn three, I believe. And he charged in with one of his 10-man squads of, I believe they're called Rust Stalkers. Rust Stalkers. And they, Those guys are yeah. nasty. <laughs> yeah, he got him out of his vehicle. He charged it with Rust Stalkers, and he charged it with uh, his cavalry. And he basically surrounded it so that the people who got out uh, would end up dying because they didn't have any space. 
So he charged into it and he ended up killing it. And that's where my plan kind of went off. Where essentially, when a kill rig is destroyed, or any transport for that matter, there's a couple things that happen simultaneously. Fight on death, disembarkation, exploding. Since they both happen after a model is destroyed, but before it is removed, the player controlling the model gets to choose in what order they happen. So what that I, meant for I, me... I was, I was, uh, hold on a minute, I'm going to look into the future. I feel like you're going to clear out some space first. Yes, absolutely. So the first thing you do is you roll for the explosion, because you don't want to fight after, before your explosion and maybe hurt less things. So I roll for the explosion, unfortunately, didn't happen. What a love to Kareen. Because if you careen, then you can fight on death against units that maybe weren't originally touching you. So, I don't explode, but I do interrupt combat. And essentially what I do is those Cerberus Raiders were the things blocking me from his objective, which was pretty far away. So by fighting on death, I was able to kill them. Then I paid a stratagem, so that when I disembark, I'm disembarking six inches rather than the three. I lose more units, but that's okay. And essentially what happened was, I was able to use that disembarkation and the new space created by killing the horses to make a string of beast snagger boys extending into one of his back, back objectives. And that was at the end of his turn, which meant that I got the full 15 primary on my turn because of it, and it also meant that I was in his backfield at the start of my turn with beast snagger boys and were able to take that objective and reduce him down to zero primary on his turn as well, which meant that it was, while he was winning the killing game, the, prim the primary game at that point was further on my side. That's a very nice move. I love that, man. That's uh, that's very slick. I'm actually curious how he came back from a zero on primary. So what, what happened from there that kind of shifted it back in his favor? Yeah, so that was on turn two, he had gotten five. On turn three, he had gotten zero and I had gotten 15. So the way it shifted back into his favor, I think it was simply just a discrepancy in assets. At this point in the game... Uh, I only had one kill rig left. I had one unit of beast snaggers, I believe, and maybe a couple characters. Whereas he still had both uh, of his full 20-man blobs. He had a, a whole unit of infiltrators still. He still had one of his 10-man units, ten units of rust stalkers, all of his characters, his vehicles. And so the discrepancy in just who had more models, it just wasn't there. Um, so despite my efforts, I couldn't hold him off and... Despite doing well in the primary and hindering him, turn four and five was basically him pushing across and me not being able to properly resist. So he was able to push and, and make back some of that primary just by sheer volume of models, it sounds like. Yes. After that turn where I got into his backfield, uh, he pushed me back out. He took the center and he really focused on wiping out a lot of my obsec, dropping his sterilizers down where the obsec was hiding, charging obsec where it was out in the middle of the board, killing any transport that any obsec was hiding in, because he realized that the way I was going to beat him was with my obsec. And so that's what he hunted down. And once those were gone, he could have his 10-man unit of rust stalkers in the center of the board, and there wasn't much I could do about it. And it was just a really smart play by Brian. He was an awesome player, both in his tactical uh, ways to play the game, but also in sort of his his moral ways to play a game. You know, like he does. There were no feel bads. It was purely him playing really well as a player, and it was a really fun game for both of us. That's fantastic to hear, man. It's always good when you go to an event. You like just play like six to eight rounds of just great people, and you come away with some friends. That's that's always a good feeling, regardless of the outcome. So. Where did you feel like you could have changed the game? Is there somewhere in the game where you're like, man, this is where man, I pinpoint that I could have... stealing the Brad Hour already. Every time. I can't take him anywhere. This is, a, you know, Blake just going wild here. 
Well, I want to know. I want I want the people of part one to know where the, do you feel the like people of part one? I love everything about that. The people of part one. You could become a part twoer. Just go to thearthwar40k.com, subscribe to our podcast, and I swear I will make you a part two right love now. It. The people of part one, hear me. You have the options. Friends, Romans, part oneers, lend me your ear. But we'll we'll say we'll save the overall, the overall strategy. For the Brad Hour, the Bradening Part Two, but I want to know. I want to know in Part One. What did? Where do you feel like you could have changed? Well, uh, we actually talked about it uh, later on in the game, and there were a couple things that I could have changed. If I had placed my terrain more aggressively towards the center, uh, there was terrain that could be placed in such a way that I could stand behind it on the objective, and true line of sight wouldn't be able to be made to me. That might have helped me push him back a little bit and make it easier for me to stand on the point with at least some obsec. Uh, another point of the game that made it difficult was, well, of course, that kill rig, if I had moved it two centimeters back, it would have survived, right? The one that was shot turn one by his rangers. And I also think that it might have been a good idea if I had just reserved some inconsequential unit. If I had put one squad of beast snag of boys in reserves it would have forced him to stick to his backfield a little bit and it would have made it so that he had more of a filter of who he wanted to send forward because he needed people in the back to uh to cover it, uh his assets in the rear i think oh, it, okay yeah okay mars you got to you got to slow down man you're giving up too many secrets man i'm just kidding go ahead what what else you got uh i think those were the main points uh honestly a lot of it has to do with list building and i'm not going to say here in the in part 1 what exactly i'm planning to change about my list but i saw ways where if i'm playing against admech there are ways to beat it and uh it's like when i was playing against my brothers in uh, i think it was like 6th or 7th edition when knights first came out and i thought you know there's no way to beat these with sheer damage output so you just got to take a different angle so there is a way to play against Mechanicus, I think, that would have given me an edge. And I think I just needed to move a little bit more towards that with my list building. Nice. And we'll, we'll, we're going to deep dive, Steve Joel. Quarter drop in the a, jar, Drop baby. a quarter in the jar. Deep dive. We're going to deep dive into it all in part two. That's what part two is all about. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it, man. I, uh, I know you got some, some good insight to give us there. I wanted to ask you, so one thing our viewers always like to hear, I think I get the same spill every time. This is, this is just me talking. I'm not reading a script here, but uh, one thing our viewers like to hear is how does the, the elite player, how does Marshall Peterson sit down and look at a loss and analyze it after the tournament? Gotcha. So the way that I look at a loss uh, during a tournament is the things you want to narrow down are did a lot have to rely on chance? That's probably the biggest one. And then the second one is the things that changed the game into your opponent's favor. Were they things that you did, something your opponent did, or something that existed from the point of even list building? Was it something during or pre-game? And then you look at those and you try to build off of them. If things required a lot of luck, what units in your army need luck to work? Do you have something that maybe has a low volume of shots, needs a higher output, or maybe more reliable rerolls? If you're in the game and your opponent did something that won them the game. What in your army allows them to take that advantage? You don't want your opponent to have the opportunity to say, oh, if I discover this thing, then I can beat you. You don't want there to be those cracks in your lists. And then finally, obviously, if you did something wrong, try and figure out how you can, how you can fix it. What habits can you build? What new strategies can you uh, pull on to get there? And then if there's anything pregame, 
you know, looking over your list, saying, what in my list did actually perform in the game? And what maybe just sat in the back and I felt like it wasn't really a liability. If my opponent was shooting at something and it made me cringe, should it be in the army because it's too easily killed? Or maybe do I need more of it so there's just more redundancy? Things like that. I love that. Those are great insights. Going on that, though, I do want to know, over the weekend, who was the MVP and who was the guy, Who what was the unit on the cutting block? I was going to steal that from you again. That's why I jumped all over it. I was afraid. So the MVP of the tournament, it's close, but I'd have to give it to, to my commandos again. They just allow me to swing the game pretty well, and they die very quickly if my opponent goes first, but they're cheap enough that they're a huge threat right out of the get-go. They're able to do a lot of movement shenanigans, and when I lose them, they're not super bothersome. So even though kill rigs or beast boys or characters had a bigger impact on the game, I think just the utility of the commandos is a really good asset to have in your pocket. I want to I want to take a moment here. So I feel like we have a monumental, unbroken first on our hands here, and I just have to I have to go into it, Brad. I'm we're ignoring the second part of that question. We'll we'll ask it in part two <laughs> because I, I have a monumental moment that we have to we have to go into. So we're going into the Q and A. We're just skipping Brad's second part. We're going to the Q and A. The Q and A is available to Art of War War Room members on our premium service. You can go and subscribe at theartofwar.com. You're getting treated poorly because this is. I feel like we have a moment here. We have to take it. So the Q of A, you can ask questions. We tell you our guest pre beforehand, and you can go in there and, and ask questions of them. So we have a question from Richard Siegler for you today, which I thought this is this is a moment on our on Broken. He has never. It's he's so new. He, it's his channel and he hasn't ever asked a question so it literally just has a little like thing that says like new poster on here <laughs> so he says can you ask marshall's list design philosophy and preference for building lists that are uniquely his does it come from practice does he want his list that opponents uh isn't going to be prepared for at the top meta build for the faction well so he's asking what my philosophy behind building a list is and why i don't take the meta list right yeah basically Okay. So as far as my philosophy with list design, it starts out where I look at my models and I think, what is cool? What do I think is really neat? And the origin of this list actually had just everything that had a squig was in the list. Uh, And then I go off of there and I cut things that aren't competitive and build towards uh, points. And then I go through the basic strategies of how many assets do I need in order to compete? what's good against the meta, and I filter from there. Uh, I like to build towards secondaries, and especially primary. My army tends to rely a lot on the primary. Uh, if my opponent gets primary points, my army's generally not that happy about it. Uh, in addition to that sort of main philosophy, as far as the meta, I actually own three Daka jets, and I own three scrap jets, and I own the Waz bomb, and I own the War Bikers. I mean, I have all the models I could have brought the Freebooter list. I had the Freebooter list written down before the Codex was even released. But when I saw that there were a dozen Freebooter lists being submitted because it, it shows you the faction when people submit lists, but before the lists are viewable, I said, you know what? I want the games to be interesting for me. I want them to be different. Uh, I've been playing Necrons for so long that playing a Metalist just, it almost seemed wrong. And so I looked at it and I said, you know what? I want to play something that is very different. When somebody sees my army on the table, I want it to be something new, something exciting, something unexpected. I want it to bring new variables to the game. In addition, 
I drove very far to get to the event, and so did my brother. And I think that if I played games where they all ended round one or round two, as very uh, meta plane shooting lists often do, I don't know. I feel like I just wouldn't be playing as much of the game. I, you know, I, I paid for the ticket, same as everyone else. So I wanted to play my uh, my thirty rounds in the tournament, right? So a list that added a lot more strategic depth and something that I felt was really exciting from start to finish meant that I could enjoy the tournament a lot more, even if it made my legs a lot more tired at the end. I'm going to dub that the Grim Shady mindset. You're, you're Grim Shady now. That's just the thing. Um, <laughs> I love it, man. That's great. That's, uh, I, I love that you're like the hipster of 40K. You're taking all these off, off, uh, off lists that are winning, and it's really cool. We actually have another question for you, and it's from an OG uh, unbroken guest, Mr. Chuck Arnett. And he says, Marshall is clearly a man of superior class, bringing the golf kill, kill rigs, but I wonder if you felt a lack of firepower in the overall list. Gotcha. Yeah, the firepower of the list was definitely lacking somewhat, but the list was built towards the idea that I would basically encounter some vehicles that needed slapping. And the kill rigs tended to do that enough with their last cannons. With orcs, the only way to really get good shooting out of the army is if you really tech into it. Because freebooters, of course, are the best shooters. And the fewer freebooters you have in a list, the less efficient that is. Because you need some to proc that freebooter ability. The shooting was a little bit difficult. And if people screened well, sometimes it made it difficult to reach what I needed to. But where I didn't have guns, I had the psychic powers of the kill rigs. That's kind of where my shooting came into play. They had the last cannon, sure, but mostly it was the smites here, the the squiggly curse there. I had a lot of ranged output that I felt I could use out of phase to sort of clean up. And so I don't feel like I went through the tournament wishing I had more shooting potential. Um, as far as damage output, I, I felt like I was doing just fine. And if I played against an opponent that did really well with screening, that could be an issue. But I, at least in this tournament, it, it didn't seem to happen. I'm going to let you... I'm going to do the Kanye. And I'm going to let you finish Brad's question now. Oh, hold on. I'm going to let you finish. So what is, uh, what is the, what's on chopping block for you? On the chopping block? Well, the main things on the chopping block, I think, are actually Mazrog and the Squigs. Uh, the ones that were sitting inside of my uh, snakebite detachment. Mazrog is really strong, and he has a lot of attacks that are thrown out, but it, it just kind of seemed like it lacked luster. Having 10 attacks during the wall and hitting on twos is good until you roll three ones, and then maybe another two ones to wound. He seemed a little bit inconsistent with the amount of minus damage. Uh, he didn't quite put enough through, and he wasn't durable enough to be consistent on the table either. In addition, his warlord trait to get back up half the time with one to three wounds remaining is something that I was attracted to at first because it was kind of like Necrons and I could do a lot of shenanigans with them. But because he was an obsec like my Necron characters are, that didn't apply as much during the games. And because it was so luck-based, it's just a 50-50 shot, it was, it, you couldn't rely on it to do any strategic plays. And so if it came into play, it was usually a bonus and wasn't super effective. So as such, they were probably first on the chopping block. And I, I think part two in the Bradning, we're really going to go into your list. We're going we're to talk about what you're, what you're doing moving forward. And I'm looking forward to hear it because you do have the very hipster list, the very out there, not with the norm. So 
Thanks for coming on today, man. We loved having you. We're going to do part two right after this. So all y'all listen, make sure to tune in and hear what Marshall has to say. Make sure to check out our other podcasts. We have The Art of War Vanilla with now Steve Joel and with old Johnny Lennon. It is The Art of War Vanilla, a sort of a kiwi flavor now to it. Also, make sure to listen to The Art of War Down Under with the late and great Adam Camilleri. We, of course, are The Art of War Unbroken, the pistachio of The Art of War family. You didn't know you liked us until you tried us. Check out all our other products, coaching services, War Room at theartofwar40k.com. Check us out for chart part two. Thanks for listening. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War and the Art of War Down Under podcast on the competitive 40K network. Theartofwar40k.com.